It's Sunday, November 21st, and you're listening to episode 19 of Firmly Planted. So last time I ended with a note on bitterness, which is where I'd like to pick up today. I've heard bitterness defined as feeling anger or annoyance with someone as soon as they walk into a room, before they even say or do anything. Such sentiments are an indication that I have not wiped the slate clean in my relationship with that person. Everything that I'm feeling in that moment is the result of past offenses, which I've allowed to pile up and choke my perception of that person. At the end of Matthew 18, Jesus gives a very strong teaching on forgiveness and the importance of our obedience on this point. In the parable, a king is settling debts with his servants, one of whom owes 10,000 talents. This amount was intended to stagger the hearers as an impossible amount for any one person to repay. At the time, a single talent was equal to a year's wages for a laborer. So if we put that in today's terms, the average day laborer makes about $32,000 a year. So the servant in question would have owed 10,000 years worth of wages or $320 million. You know the story. Of course, the servant does not have the means to repay the debt, and the king condemns the man and his family to slavery. The servant begs for more time, whereupon the king cancels the debt entirely. This forgiven servant then promptly goes out and finds a man who owes him what would have been about $13,000 and demands immediate payment. When this second man, in turn, pleads for mercy, He is refused and sent to prison until he pays off the debt. The king, of course, learns of this cruel act, reinstates the canceled debt, and imprisons the unmerciful servant until the debt is paid. The parable ends with this warning. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So obviously, forgiving those who sin against us is imperative, But we tend to run into a number of obstacles that make forgiving difficult and or ineffective. Chief among those obstacles is an improper perspective of our own sin and God's holiness. In David's famous psalm of repentance, he declares that he has sinned against God and God alone, despite the clear violations against Uriah, at least, in taking Uriah's wife and then killing him. David's perspective of God's holiness is such that the offenses he has committed against other people cannot even compare with how grievously he has sinned against God. Elsewhere in the same psalm, David asserts that his sin problem has existed since conception. Paul supports this view, telling the Romans that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and then spread to every person from there, and that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. He makes no exception for infants or the unborn. Sin is as much a part of our DNA as the instructions for building lungs and a heart. Now, not only are we sinful from the outset before we ever take a breath, not only are our most serious offenses against God rather than our fellow man, but we are hopelessly indebted to our Creator. Let's consider another money example. A trillion dollars is a pretty popular number these days. It gets tossed around and we really don't know or have any concept for exactly how much money that is. So let's put it in perspective. 
If I spent $1 every single second of every minute of every day, it would take me more than 31,000 years to spend a trillion dollars. It's a mind-numbing sum of money, but a helpful view of how great our sin is. It is not possible to overcome such a debt. The idea that any person might be able to accrue enough good deeds to outweigh their bad ought to seem preposterous. Sin is not just something we do. It is a symptom of a much deeper, more pervasive problem. Apart from Christ, the intent of the human heart is only and continually evil. At this point, you may be wanting to object that God is love. And you're right. But he is also holy and sinless. As sinners acquainted only with other sinners, we tend to have a very limited understanding of what exactly that means. In both the Old and New Testaments, in Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12, God is referred to as a consuming fire. It's not that he lacks love for us and therefore he chooses to punish sin. It's that sin cannot exist in his presence. We cannot continue in our sinful state with our sinful DNA and have a relationship with God. By way of another example, consider the sun. It bears us no ill will, but if the Earth's orbit were just a very little bit closer, the Earth would burn up merely due to the nature of the sun. God's holiness, likewise, consumes sin, an event that we cannot survive without Christ's atoning work and the exchanging of our broken DNA for his unblemished life. So hopefully, with a better understanding of our own sin in relation to God's holiness, we can address a second reason we struggle to forgive, which is that we compare the offender's sin to our own. We balance their blame in the situation against the share of blame that we feel we deserve, or don't deserve, most likely. Instead, their offense against us should be weighed against the vast number of offenses we have each accumulated against God all of which were canceled when he poured out his wrath against sin on his own son instead of us. Furthermore, just as we are not forgiven by God because we deserve it, so we cannot tie our forgiveness of others to whether they are deserving. God stands ready to forgive any who repent. Who are we to judge more harshly? How can I even consider setting myself up as a higher court of law than God? At the end of the day, as David says, the offender has sinned primarily against God, and he stands ready to forgive. Now, just because we comprehend why we should forgive, and that we must, even a proper understanding of how very much we have been forgiven does not mean that the actual act of forgiveness is easy. I think some of that is the result of a misunderstanding of what exactly forgiveness entails. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not at all based on feelings. It is my choosing to obey, to release that person from my judgment and my standards of rightness. It's also not forgiving and forgetting, but rather following God's example of choosing not to remember. It's choosing not to dwell on the offense and choosing to forgive again each time the offense comes to mind. 
Ken Sandy, in his book, Peacemaking for Families, identifies the following four promises that he says we should consciously be making, even possibly verbally committing to, when we forgive someone. I will not think about this incident. I will not bring up this incident again to use against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our relationship. Of course, this is not always a once-and-done thing, especially for large offenses or those with long-term consequences, and not all forgiveness leads to reconciliation of the relationship. Some offenses we may spend the rest of our lives continually forgiving, but if we have the tools and understanding, we can push back against our natural leaning toward bitterness, choosing to forgive again and again and again, multiple times in the course of 10 minutes, if that's what it takes. I personally have found prayer to be a very good means of turning bitter thoughts away. It's difficult to nurture bitterness against a person when you're talking to God about him. From a human perspective, the other person's offenses toward me may far, far outweigh anything I have done to them. But if I will dwell in the forgiveness I've been given, if I will dwell in the knowledge and remembrance of a vastly larger weight of sin completely erased, from such a position it will be much easier for me to offer forgiveness to another, if for no other reason than simply as an act of worship and obedience in gratitude to the one who has set me free. Because I have been forgiven, because I have been forgiven much, I forgive. 